Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Greatest Love Stories, and today's story, The Love of Long Ago, by Guy de Maupassant. The old-fashioned chateau was built on a wooded knoll in the midst of tall trees with dark green foliage. The park extended to a great distance, in one direction to the edge of the forest, in another to the distant country. A few yards from the front of the house was a huge stone basin with marble ladies taking a bath. Other basins were seen at intervals down to the foot of the slope, and a stream of water fell in cascades from one basin to another. From the manor house, which preserved the grace of a superannuated coquette, down to the grottoes encrusted with shellwork, where slumbered the loves of a bygone age, everything in this antique domain had retained the physiognomy of former days. Everything seemed to speak still of ancient customs, of the manners of long ago, of former gallantries, and of the elegant trivialities so dear to our grandmothers. In a parlor in the style of Louis XV, whose walls were covered with shepherds paying court to shepherdesses, beautiful ladies in hoop skirts and gallant gentlemen in wigs, a very old woman, who seemed dead as soon as she ceased to move, was almost lying down in a large easy chair, at each side of which hung a thin, mummy-like hand. Her dim eyes were gazing dreamily toward the distant horizon as if they sought to follow through the park the visions of her youth. Through the open window every now and then came a breath of air laden with the odor of grass and the perfume of flowers. It made her white locks flutter around her wrinkled forehead and old memories float through her brain. Beside her, on a tapestried stool, a young girl, with long fair hair hanging in braids down her back, was embroidering an altar cloth. There was a pensive expression in her eyes, and it was easy to see that she was dreaming, while her agile fingers flew over her work. But the old lady turned round her head and said, Berta, read me something out of the newspapers, that I may still know sometimes what is going on in the world. The young girl took up a newspaper and cast a rapid glance over it. There's a great deal about politics, Grandmama. Shall I pass that over? Yes, yes, darling. Are there no love stories? Is gallantry, then, dead in France, that they no longer talk about abductions or adventures as they did formerly? The girl made a long search through the columns of the newspaper. Here is one, she said. It is entitled, A Love Drama. The old woman smiled through her wrinkles. Read that for me, she said. And Berta commenced. It was a case of vitriol throwing. A wife in order to avenge herself on her husband's mistress, had burned her face and eyes. She had left the court of assizes acquitted, declared to be innocent, amid the applause of the crowd. The grandmother moved about excitedly in her chair and exclaimed, This is horrible. Why, it is perfectly horrible. See whether you can find anything else to read me, darling. Berta again made a search, and farther down among the reports of criminal cases she read, Gloomy drama. A shop girl, no longer young, allowed herself to be led astray by a young man. Then, to avenge herself on her lover, whose heart proved fickle, she shot him with a revolver. The unhappy man is maimed for life. The jury, all men of moral character, condoning the illicit love of the murderess, honorably acquitted her. This time the old grandmother appeared quite shocked, and, in a trembling voice, she said, why, you people are mad nowadays. You are mad. 
The good God has given you love, the only enchantment in life. Man has added to this gallantry the only distraction of our dull hours. And here you are mixing up with it vitriol and revolvers, as if one were to put mud into a flagon of Spanish wine. Berta did not seem to understand her grandmother's indignation. But, Grandmama, this woman avenged herself. Remember, she was married, and her husband deceived her. The grandmother gave a start. What ideas have they been filling your head with, you young girls of today? Berta replied. But marriage is sacred, Grandmama. The grandmother's heart, which had its birth in the great age of gallantry, gave a sudden leap. It is love that is sacred, she said. Listen, child, to an old woman who has seen three generations, and who has had a long, long experience of men and women. Marriage and love have nothing in common. We marry to found a family, and we form families in order to constitute society. Society cannot dispense with marriage. If society is a chain, each family is a link in that chain. In order to weld those links, we always seek metals of the same order. When we marry, we must bring together suitable conditions. We must combine fortunes, unite similar races, and aim at the common interest, which is riches and children. We marry only once, my child, because the world requires us to do so. But we may love twenty times in one lifetime because nature has made us like this. Marriage, you see, is law and love is an instinct which impels us, sometimes along a straight, and sometimes along a devious, path. The world has made laws to combat our instincts. It was necessary to make them. But our instincts are always stronger, and we ought not to resist them too much, because they come from God, while the laws only come from men. If we did not perfume life with love, as much love as possible, darling, as we put sugar into drugs for children, Nobody would care to take it just as it is. Berta opened her eyes wide in astonishment. She murmured, Oh, Grandmama, we can only love once. The grandmother raised her trembling hands toward heaven, as if again to invoke the defunct god of gallantries. She exclaimed indignantly, You have become a race of serfs, a race of common people. Since the revolution, it is impossible any longer to recognize society. You have attached big words to every action, and wearisome duties to every corner of existence. You believe in equality and eternal passion. People have written poetry telling you that people have died of love. In my time, poetry was written to teach men to love every woman. And we, when we liked a gentleman, my child, we sent him a page. And when a fresh caprice came into our hearts, we were not slow in getting rid of the last lover, unless we kept both of them. The old woman smiled a keen smile, and a gleam of roguery twinkled in her gray eye, the intellectual, skeptical roguery of those people who did not believe that they were made of the same clay as the rest, and who lived as masters for whom common beliefs were not intended. The young girl, turning very pale, faltered out, so, then, women have no honor? The grandmother ceased to smile. If she had kept in her soul some of Voltaire's irony, she had also a little of Jean-Jacques' glowing philosophy. No honor? Because we loved and dared to say so? 
and even boasted of it? But, my child, if one of us, among the greatest ladies in France, had lived without a lover, she would have had the entire court laughing at her. Those who wished to live differently had only to enter a convent. And you imagine, perhaps, that your husbands will love but you alone, all their lives. As if, indeed, this could be the case, I tell you that marriage is a thing necessary in order that society should exist, but it is not in the nature of our race, do you understand? There is only one good thing in life, and that is love. And how you misunderstand it! How you spoil it! You treat it as something solemn like a sacrament, or something to be bought, like a dress. The young girl caught the old woman's trembling hands in her own. Hold your tongue, I beg of you, Grandmamma. And, on her knees, with tears in her eyes, she prayed to heaven to bestow on her a great passion, one sole eternal passion in accordance with the dream of modern poets. While the grandmother, kissing her on the forehead, quite imbued still with that charming, healthy reason with which gallant philosophers tinctured the thought of the eighteenth century, murmured, Take care, my poor darling, if you believe in such folly as that, you will be very unhappy. We'll return to our next Maupassant story right after this message from our sponsor. And now, back to our, and now, back to our second story. Our second story, Mother and Son, by Guy de Maupassant. A party of men were chatting in the smoking room after dinner. We were talking of unexpected legacies, strange inheritances. Then M. Le Brumet, who was sometimes called the illustrious judge, and at other times the illustrious lawyer, went and stood with his back to the fire. "'I have,' said he, "'to search for an heir who disappeared under peculiarly distressing circumstances. It is one of those simple and terrible dramas of ordinary life, a thing which possibly happens every day, and which is nevertheless one of the most dreadful things I know. Here are the facts. Nearly six months ago I was called to the bedside of a dying woman. She said to me, Monsieur, I want to entrust to you the most delicate, the most difficult, and the most wearisome mission that can be conceived. Be good enough to notice my will, which is there on the table. A sum of five thousand francs is left to you as a fee if you do not succeed, and of a hundred thousand francs if you do succeed. I want you to find my son after my death. She asked me to assist her to sit up in bed, in order that she might talk with greater ease, for her voice, broken and gasping, was whistling in her throat. It was a very wealthy establishment. The luxurious apartment of an elegant simplicity was upholstered with materials as thick as walls, with a soft, inviting surface. The dying woman continued, You are the first to hear my horrible story. I will try to have strength enough to finish it. You must know all, in order that you, whom I know to be a kind-hearted man, as well as a man of the world, may have a sincere desire to aid me with all your power. Listen to me. Before my marriage, I loved a young man whose suit was rejected by my family because he was not rich enough. Not long afterward, I married a man of great wealth. I married him through ignorance, through obedience, through indifference, as young girls do marry. 
I had a child, a boy. My husband died in the course of a few years. He whom I had loved had married, in his turn. When he saw that I was a widow, he was crushed by grief at knowing he was not free. He came to see me. He wept and sobbed so bitterly that it was enough to break my heart. He came to see me at first as a friend. Perhaps I ought not to have received him. What could I do? I was alone, so sad, so solitary, so hopeless. And I loved him still. What sufferings we women have sometimes to endure! I had only him in the world, my parents being dead. He came frequently. He spent whole evenings with me. I should not have let him come so often, seeing that he was married, but I had not enough willpower to prevent him from coming. How could I tell it? He became my lover. How did this come about? Can I explain it? Can anyone explain such things? Do you think it could be otherwise when two human beings are drawn to each other by the irresistible force of mutual affection? Do you believe, monsieur, that it is always in our power to resist, that we can keep up the struggle forever, and refuse to yield to the prayers, the supplications, the tears, the frenzied words, the appeals on bended knees, the transports of passion with which we are pursued by the man we adore, whom we want to gratify even in his slightest wishes, whom we desire to crown with every possible happiness, and whom, if we are to be guided by a worldly code of honor, we must drive to despair? What strength would it not require? What a renunciation of happiness! What self-denial! And even what virtuous selfishness! In short, monsieur, I was his mistress, and I was happy. I became, and this was my greatest weakness and my greatest piece of cowardice, I became his wife's friend. We brought up my son together. We made a man of him, a thorough man, intelligent, full of sense and resolution, of large and generous ideas. The boy reached the age of seventeen. He, the young man, was fond of my, my lover, almost as fond of him as I was myself, for he had been equally cherished and cared for by both of us. He used to call him his dear friend, and respected him immensely, having never received from him anything but wise counsels and an example of integrity, honor, and probity. He looked upon him as an old, loyal, and devoted comrade of his mother, as a sort of moral father, guardian, protector. How am I to describe it? Perhaps the reason why he never asked any questions was that he had been accustomed from his earliest years to see this man in my house, at my side, and at his side, always concerned about us both. One evening the three of us were to dine together. This was my chief amusement, and I waited for the two men, asking myself which of them would be the first to arrive. The door opened. It was my old friend. I went toward him with outstretched arms, and he pressed my lips in a long, delicious kiss. All of a sudden, a slight sound, a faint rustling, that mysterious sensation which indicates the presence of another person, made us start and turn round abruptly. Jean, my son, stood there livid, staring at us. There was a moment of atrocious confusion. I drew back, holding out my hand toward my son as if in supplication, but I could not see him. He had gone. We remained facing each other, 
my lover and I, crushed, unable to utter a word. I sank into an armchair, and I felt the desire, a vague, powerful desire, to flee, to go out into the night, and to disappear forever. Then convulsive sobs rose in my throat, and I wept, shaken with spasms, my heart breaking, all my nerves writhing with the horrible sensation of an irreparable misfortune. And with that dreadful sense of shame which, in such moments as this, fills a mother's heart. He looked at me in a terrified manner, not venturing to approach, to speak to me, or to touch me, for fear of the boy's return. At last he said, I am going to follow him, to talk to him, and explain matters to him. In short, I must see him and let him know. And he hurried away. I waited, waited in a distracted frame of mind, trembling at the least sound, starting with fear and with some unutterably strange and intolerable emotion at every slight crackling of the fire in the grate. I waited an hour, two hours, feeling my heart swell with a dread I'd never before experienced, such anguish that I would not wish the greatest criminal to endure ten minutes of such misery. Where was my son? What was he doing? About midnight, a messenger brought me a note from my lover. I still know its contents by heart. Has your son returned? I did not find him. I am down here. I do not want to go up at this hour. I wrote in pencil on the same slip of paper, Jean has not returned. You must find him. And I remained all night in the armchair waiting for him. I felt as if I were going mad. I longed to run wildly about, to roll on the ground. And yet I did not even stir, but kept waiting, hour after hour. What was going to happen? I tried to imagine, to guess, but I could form no conception in spite of my efforts, in spite of the tortures of my soul. And now I feared that they might meet. What would they do in that case? What would my son do? My mind was torn with fearful doubts, with terrible suppositions. You can understand my feelings, can you not, monsieur? My chambermaid, who knew nothing, who understood nothing, came into the room every moment, believing, naturally, that I'd lost my reason. I sent her away with a word or a movement of the hand. She went for the doctor, who found me in the throes of a nervous attack. I was put to bed. I had brain fever. When I regained consciousness after a long illness, I saw beside my bed my lover, alone. I exclaimed, My son? Where is my son? He made no reply. I stammered, Dead? Has he committed suicide? No, no, I swear it, he said, but we have not found him in spite of all my efforts. Then, becoming suddenly exasperated and even indignant, for women are subject to such outbursts of unaccountable and unreasoning anger, I said, I forbid you to come near me or see me again unless you find him. Go away. And he did go away. I've never seen one or the other of them since, monsieur, and thus I have lived for the last twenty years. Can you imagine what all this meant to me? Can you understand this monstrous punishment? this slow, perpetual laceration of a mother's heart, this abominable, endless waiting? 
Endless, did I say? No, it is about to end, for I am dying. I am dying without ever again seeing either of them, either one or the other. He, the man I loved, has written to me every day for the last twenty years, and I, I've never consented to see him, even for one second. For I had a strange feeling that, if he were to come back here, my son would make his appearance at the same moment. Oh, my son! Is he dead? Is he living? Where is he hiding? Over there, perhaps, beyond the great ocean, in some country so far away that even its very name is unknown to me? Does he ever think of me? Ah, if he only knew! How cruel one's children are! Did he understand to what frightful suffering he condemned me? Into what depths of despair? Into what tortures he cast me while I was still in the prime of life, leaving me to suffer until this moment, when I am about to die? Me, his mother, who loved him with all the intensity of a mother's love. Oh, isn't it cruel? You will tell him all this, monsieur, will you not? You will repeat to him my last words. My child, my dear, dear child, be less harsh toward poor women. Life is already brutal and savage enough in its dealings with them. My dear son, think of what the existence of your poor mother has been ever since the day you left her. My dear child, forgive her, and love her, now that she is dead, for she has had to endure the most frightful penance ever inflicted on a woman. She gasped for breath, trembling, as if she'd addressed the last words to her son, and as if he stood by her bedside. Then she added, you will tell him also, monsieur, that I never again saw the other. Once more she ceased speaking, then in a broken voice she said, Leave me now, I beg of you. I want to die all alone, since they are not with me. Maitre Le Brumet added, And I left the house, messieurs, crying like a fool, so bitterly, indeed, that my coachman turned round to stare at me. And to think that, every day, dramas like this are being enacted all around us. I have not found the son. That son, well, say what you like about him. But I call him that criminal son. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Greatest Love Stories. If you enjoy our show, please do send us a review, Apple listeners. We would appreciate that very much. And please join us next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern for a brand new episode for 1001 Greatest Love Stories. Until then, everyone stay safe, and we'll be back soon.